The sermon text for tonight's sermon is found in John 4, chapter 43 through 54. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana and Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servant met, met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Would you pray with me? Father, we have prayed much in the service. And now we ask one more time that I would be helped to speak the word of God with boldness and truthfulness and faithfulness to your word and that there would be a humility, an openness to your spirit, a love for your people, a sensitivity to their needs, and a power to cut through the blindness that Satan works to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I pray for your people that there would be a hunger and a sensitivity to your leading. And I ask that you would work salvation in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it would be helpful first to walk through this text looking for those strange places, and there are several, that need explanation because they are so perplexing. So that's what we're going to do first, and then we'll step back at the big picture and apply it to our, our lives. Let's start at verse 43. John chapter 4, verse 43. Uh, we know that Jesus had just spent two days in Samaria, and they were spectacularly successful days. More successful among the half-breeds than his own people. That is no accident. That will be significant. These are people nobody in Judaism likes. And he went out of his way to go there. And the whole town of Sychar evidently is responsive. And they've used words like, he's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. And the focus there was not on signs and wonders. It was on the word. They said at the end of that section, we have heard him for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. The emphasis there is we heard him. And because we heard him, we know him. 
that's going to be significant as we move now from Samaria into Galilee. He's coming home. Galilee, the place where he grew up, Nazareth, 10 miles north of Nazareth, Cana, where he turned the water into wine, 15 miles to the east on the sea, Capernaum, where the official lives with his dying son, who will come in a moment, to ask Jesus to come and and heal the boy. So he's coming home. Home meaning not just Nazareth, not just Cana, not just Capernaum, but this, this is his territory, about the size of the greater Twin Cities. Now there's some strange things here. The first strange thing that made me wrestle was the way verse 44 works. Whenever you see things like parentheses, like that's an editor's effort to make it work, I wouldn't have put them in. Verse 44 begins with the word for. If you have a NIV or a TNIV, you won't see that. It's one of the, another reason why you should get a more literal version. I wrote a letter today to one of the great supporters of the TNIV, and I said, look, I'm building my entire sermon tonight on two words that aren't in your text. What am I supposed to do? It's a serious thing for me. So I'm sorry that if you have an NIV or a TNIV, the, the because or the for isn't there. You've got the word now because they're troubled. They don't know what to do with for, neither do I. But I'm going to work on it. And the word therefore in... Beginning verse 45 is not there either. You got when. So that's a serious, that's not a funny suggestion. You can use your NIV if you want over here for clarification and reading and enjoyment. But if you want to get something that where, where all the words are there, then get the ESV or the NASB or the New King James or, you know, I'm not trying to sell anything. I just want all the words because I lean on them. I make my points from them. Okay. I, I know translation is complex. I didn't intend to say any of that. Sorry. <laughs> Verse 44 begins with the word for or because. Now, get this. This is strange. After the two days, he departed for Galilee because he had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. That's weird, right? No wonder they changed it. That's strange. I'm going home because at home they don't like me. They don't honor me at home. So I'm going. So I'm going. Therefore I'm going. That's important. The, the text hangs on those kinds of paradoxes. John writes that way. He means to provoke us. Make us scratch our heads and think and crawl in and say, you're strange, Jesus. You go home because at home they don't honor you. And Jesus says, yes. That's why I'm going home. Now, this is not new that, that he goes because he goes home because at home he gets no honor. This is not a new thought. Think now. 
back over the four chapters. Chapter 1, verse 11. Maybe I should let you fill in a few blanks. He came to his blank. Own, and his own did not. This is not new. This is the plan. I'm coming to my own. Again and again and again I'm coming to my own in this gospel. My own people, my own Jewish kindred. And they're the very ones, unlike the Samaritans. I just had such a good time in Sychar. What can I have a good time in Cana or Capernaum or Nazareth? That's not the plan. This opposition is going to become so fierce, he will die. This is part of the plan. I'm going into the opposition. I'm going into the rejection. I'm not moving. On. I'm not looking for people to honor me. I'm, I'm, I'm reaching out to people who don't honor me. Very, very important that we see these connections. Now, here's the second strange thing. The first one was the way, the logical connection between verse 44 and, and uh, his movement into Galilee. The second one is the way verse 45 functions. It's just as strange. But now that we've been set up to hear strange things, maybe we'll leave it alone. It starts with the word so or therefore. If you don't have that, it's there. Therefore. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, now, wait a minute. You just said, I thought, that at home they don't honor you. And now you're saying, therefore, since they don't honor a prophet at home, they welcome him. A prophet is not without honor in his own hometown, therefore they welcomed him. The answer is that this welcome isn't what you think it is. Now, I, I don't say that because I have special glasses on. Oh, I see in the word welcome something different. No. I, I just see the rest of the text. I'm just dealing with the the whole paragraph trying to make sense out of the flow here and, and let you watch. There's more underneath this receiving or this welcoming than meets the eye. And this is not new either. I think the reason I'm seeing these things because I've seen them before. There is a kind of welcoming in the Gospel of John. There is a kind of receiving of Jesus. There is a kind of belief in Jesus that he will not trust because it is not real. It is sign-seeking. It is wonder-seeking. It is power-enamored. Okay, now here's, here are a couple of clues for that. Back in chapter 2, verse 23, he was down in Jerusalem and listen to what it says. Now, this is John 2, 23. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about about man, for he knew what was in man. What's that? They believed on him when they saw the signs that he did, and he wouldn't have anything to do with them. This is not a faith that you want to have. This is a faith, this is a welcoming into Galilee. Come on in, our boy, our miracle working boy. That's our boy, the miracle worker. Sure, they're welcoming him. Is that the honor he's after? It wasn't in 223. What about chapter 7? We haven't gotten there yet, but I mentioned it when we were back at 223. Really strange, but fits perfectly with the strangeness of this text. John 7, 3. So his brothers, now these are his physical brothers, his, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. What? They just said, go up there and do your miracles so that the world can see. Because they didn't believe. They believed something. Yeah, they believed that he was a miracle worker. You bet. Big time. They'd seen it. Just like the Pharisees who saw him raise Jesus from the dead. And then what did they do? Plotted to kill him. They believed totally that Lazarus was alive. And that Jesus made it happen. You can believe all the miracles and dishonor the Lord. That's what this text is about. This text is, is warning us of mindsets, of ways of dealing with Jesus that look so positive on the outside and inside. There's no honor going on. There's no love for him. There's just love for power. They, we use him. How many of you use Jesus instead of loving Jesus? He just shows up when you're sick. That's what's going on here. Now, back to 4.45 to 48. We need to see how this is fleshed out here. To see if I'm on the right track. Is, is 2.23 and 7.3 to 5 really what's happening in Galilee? I'm, a, I'm suggesting that. That this wrong kind of faith in 2.23 and this wrong kind of faith in 7.3 to 5 is the kind of welcoming he's getting here. That's what I'm, that's why I think the therefore works. He's, gets no honor in Galilee, therefore they welcomed him, but now we need to see evidence. You mean really, they welcomed him in a wrong way? Listen to how it's described. Let's start at verse 45 again. They welcomed him, but then it says, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too, had gone to the feast. So John is drawing attention to the fact that the reason they're welcoming him is because they had seen these things that he did in Jerusalem. In fact, 
when he mentions where he goes to meet this official, he says it's Cana, and he just adds, and, and that was the place where he turned water into wine. He doesn't make anything of it. He just mentions it like he's got a reputation here, too. That was phenomenal. And people were amazed. Wow, like he could do that at our wedding, maybe. And, and if we know him, if he's our friend, then we've got a little association there with the power, and hmm, that really feels good. Now, here's, here's a huge question. Do you think John, the writer, is turning our attention away from this wrong receiving, wrong believing, wrong welcoming, that's uh, sign-seeking, wonder-loving, power-enamored, but not person-loving? Do, do you think he's now with the official? Here comes the official who's got the sixth son in Capernaum. Here comes the official. Is John now saying, okay, now here we're shifting onto a man who gets it right. Is that what's going to happen? Let's read it. Start at 46, about uh, in the middle or near the end of that verse. Verse 46. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, now mark this, he said to him, and then he uses a plural you. You can't see that in English. That is one of the tiny, tiny advantages of knowing the original language. Because in inflected languages, you can tell when pronouns are plural or singular, and you can't in English. In English, the word you could be singular, could be plural. This is plural. And yet he says it to him. Okay, so here's what he says. He says to him, unless you, you all, y'all, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's not a nice thing to say. To a broken-hearted father? Is it? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So, the least we must say is this. I'm asking, is this man going to set a new paradigm for us? Is he going to set a new example of good faith? Not the wrong kind of faith, but the right kind of faith. Is the official going to get it right? Well, Jesus starts putting him in the wrong, put him in the group with the wrong. He says to you, he looks, he says, I'm saying, he says to him, unless you, and then he uses the plural, you all, they're all standing around. This whole area here loves signs and wonders, and they won't believe on me without them. That's the only kind of faith I get around here. He's saying that to this man. Well, my sense is, and I'll try to take you through these verses to show you, is that he's testing this man. A lot like he tested the Syrophoenician woman who came. Remember that story? Not in John, but she came, and she's a Syrophoenician. She's a foreigner. And she says, my daughter is, is sick. Would you heal her? And Jesus says to her, 
uh, you shouldn't take the bread that belongs to the children and give it to the dogs. You just, what? What? And my understanding of that is that he's, he's testing her. Because when she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs, and that's all I need. He said, it is done. For that saying, you get everything you need. So she passed the test. And she's in. Now, does he pass the test? Does the official get up, get his back up? What are you you talking to me like that? I've got a sick boy. And you're telling me nobody believes on you around here except for signs and wonders. And yeah, I've just asked you for a sign and a wonder, but I don't want to get caught up in this. I just want my boy. I mean, I don't know what kind of sentimental notion you have of Jesus Christ, but just read your Bibles and it'll go away. He is so outside of everybody's box. Once you, once you think you've got him emotionally figured out, he slaps you up the side of the head. And then when you think he's that kind of a guy, he's holding you in your worst moment when everybody's abandoned you. You cannot put this man in a box. I, I just want to disabuse you every week I can of thinking you got him figured out. So I think he's testing the official. Um, Verse 49. This official does not say a single word about that rebuff. He does not comment it. He does not complain about it. He does not throw up his hands. He simply repeats this amazing statement. Verse 49. Sir, come down. Before my child dies. Now neither Jesus nor John comments on the man's sincerity here. He simply gives him the gift. Better than he asked. Better than he asked. He said, would you come with me to to touch him? And Jesus says, go. He's okay. Just go. He's well. And verse 50, in the middle of the verse there, the man believed. And you want, I want, with all my heart to say, that's real. That's the right kind. I I do, I think it's almost there. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And, and what's so remarkable there is that uh, he had asked Jesus to come. See, would you come? Come with me. And, and Jesus, instead of coming, said, go. Your son will live. And this man did not raise a peep of disappointment. But I need you to come. What if he's not well? You'd, I need you to put your hand on him. I've seen that happen. There's power that goes out from you. I want you to be there. He doesn't say a word like that. He just goes. That's a good sign. I need to see the miracle. 
I need to see the, the fireworks at my, at my home. None of that. Just those. So I'm inclined to think that in that moment where he said, would you come? And Jesus looks at him and says, you go. He'll be all right. In that sovereign moment. I can do it from here. He sees through the power to the person and he bows. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior of the world. That kind of response is, is I think, beginning, at least beginning to happen in this official. I, I think we're encouraged to say beginning because of what happens next. So a, a confirmation is going to come now of this healing in that very hour. Let's go to verse 51. As he was going, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday. This is about 15 miles away. It happened at 1 o'clock. Father doesn't get home. He didn't, he didn't go home. He stayed overnight somewhere. Yesterday at the seventh hour, seven plus six in the morning, that's the way you figure one o'clock. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his households. He have believed twice for this man as though it was a, a growing thing. Let me ask this question. Who is he? Does that make any difference here? The word translated official, basilikos, basilia, basilus, all means king. Basilus is king. Basilia is kingdom. A basilikos is a king's attendant, a person in the court of a king, related to a king. What king? There's only one king in the region. Herod Antipas, a wicked man, married his brother's wife, killed John the Baptist. The word king associate rings in my ears connected with Herod. Works for Herod. I don't know if he's a Jew or not. Maybe, probably is. But at least there are these associations with yuck. We don't like Herod. Which would just fit perfectly into what Jesus is doing, isn't it? He came from Samaria, all those yucky people that Jesus loves. And Jews don't, back in those days. And has a glorious, successful ingathering of all these unacceptable half-breeds and and now he's turned to his own and his own insist on being sign seekers and wonder lovers and power grabbers and, and don't honor him for who he really is as a glorious, humble savior of the world who's going to die for sinners. And then he turns to a who? Somebody from 
from Capernaum that's somehow connected with Herod, who when he hears, go, your son lives, he just goes. So my answer is yes. I think think this man's got the right kind of faith. I think it, it happened, and then it grew, and I think the intention is to contrast this man with the others and that he did pass the test. Okay, there's the text. I've worked through it with you stopping at those places where I'm perplexed. And now I'm going to step back and just try to ask the big picture. What's the main point of this text for us? And uh, what do we do with it? I think the main point of this text is the same as all the other texts so far. Namely, what John, the writer, is doing is showing the greatness of Christ through this astonishing miracle, go Your son is well. Just go. Fifteen miles away, it's done. Highlighting the power and the grace of Jesus. And the other thing he's doing underneath that to help us see that is dealing with all of these inner dynamics of dishonoring the Lord because you believe in him in the wrong way. So those are the two big things in this text. This one here is the main thing. Look at this Christ. See him the way the official saw him. Marvel at his power and grace. Look at that sign. But how wrong you could get it and how blind you become to it. And if you somehow were in his hometown, you might not give him any honor at all. So let's take those two things one at a time and try to apply them to ourselves. First, the one below. And we'll end on the main in just a few minutes. Verse 42, I think, begs me to put myself in it and ask whether today I struggle with with anything there. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. And I'm thinking about Jesus now. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. This, there's something about being a homeboy with Jesus that messes you up. Why? What is it? I want to know that. Is it in me? Are the impulses, are the impulses in the hometown people that are, because they are hometown people, unable to honor him, there's something, some impulses in that situation that are ruining their ability to see him and know him and love him and honor him. What is that? And, and as you try to analyze what it is, then you start to say, whoa, I think those things are still alive. None of us here is, is hometown people with Jesus. None of us says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in his hometown, uh, and so I'm in that category. No, you're not in his hometown. But the impulses that work there to make them dishonor him are, are here and there in you. What are they? I, I saw three. Number one. The pride of attachment to someone special. The pride of attachment to someone special. There's a kind of vicarious sense of importance when you know somebody important. The people could say, that miracle worker grew up in my hometown. Grew up in my hometown. And it makes them want his miracles to be popular. 
So dishonoring him doesn't mean you don't want him to be successful. It's just for all the wrong reasons. It's feeding your ego. I know him. He's my friend. I shake his hand. I saw him when he was little. And, and all of that's nothing wrong with that unless it has become an impulse within you that is making you crave all the secondary kudos that you're getting because of that. Now, I just want to say that's alive today. And it can blind you to Jesus. It may be that you are swept away by an attachment to a church, Bethlehem, a movement, a music style, a person, a ministry. And none of them is evil. In fact, what feels so right about it is that they're, they're Christian. And you want to see them succeed and grow and have influence. And that's not wrong either. But subtly, it's because it's feeding your ego. It's feeding your ego. Did you get that connection with that church or that person or that movement or that ministry or that style or whatever is the going thing? And, and, and I'm just pleading with us that we discern our hearts, right? It's not wrong to, to, to love a, a movement or to love a person or to love a style or to love a church. It's just wrong for it to be so twisted by the subtleties of the devil that it's stoking our ego rather than magnifying Jesus. So that's number one. I think that was at work there. I could show you texts in the, in the other Gospels where I'm getting these three ideas, but that would be too far afield. Here's number two. Not only is there the pride of attachment to someone special, there's a sense of entitlement that comes when you know a certain influential person. He's from our hometown. We get first dibs. At least special dibs. And that mindset is, is still with us. It creeps into our souls. We feel entitled. And you can even feel a wrong kind of entitlement from Jesus. That's because you know somebody in the world, but because you know Jesus, and, and, and suddenly it shifts around from being a, a glorious dependence on free grace and longing that he be magnified because of who he is to he owes me. And these circumstances aren't working out the way I anticipated. And I'm entitled after what I've put in with him and how I know him and how we've got this thing that I'm entitled to something better. And, and that attitude will blind you to who he really is. That's number two. And number three, this one, here are the paradoxes, is exactly the opposite of the first two. And you say, well, how can both be true? Well, that's just the way sin is. That's how subtle our hearts are. This one is a sense of over-familiarity with Jesus. man is one of us. We knew his mother. We knew his brothers. This is what they said in the Gospels. This is, this is Mary's son. He 
can't be doing these things. He just, oh, we knew him as a boy. He's just so ordinary. He's just one of us. This is a over familiarity that rules out the possibility that he could blow your brains out with miracles. It's just amazing. He can't be that way. That's why I said it's the opposite. The first group, they're expecting miracles. They want miracles. And this, this other group is saying, it's just, it's just, it's just Jesus, oh Jesus. We knew him. He, he can't be that. And that keeps you blind. You, you, you evangelicals, we evangelicals, can be so familiar with this book and this man Jesus, we can't let him break out. He can't do that miracle today. You pray for miracles? Or are you, are you so comfortable and familiar with the steady state, non-miraculous evangelical world that asking for something extraordinary, it's, it's dangerous. You might become a charismatic or <laughs> worse. Well, your pastor, this one, believes in miracles and asks for them regularly. I asked for one in PV Park this morning for a fellow I was talking to about the Lord because he's got cancer and said on the 27th he's going to be in that hospital right there across the street and have a lung taken out. And I said, well, let's pray. I'm going to ask Jesus to heal your cancer. He's not a believer. He's manifestly not a believer. I said, I'm going to ask Jesus to heal your cancer, and when he does, then, then you'll know that he's real, okay? His name is David, so you can pray. We've got 12 days, and they go in there, and they say, well, we don't need to take your lung out because it's not there anymore. I asked for that. I don't think that's a... I think that's a very important thing. I, I think God all over the world is doing that sort of thing in order to get a hearing for himself. It's the hearing that saves, by the way. That's the point of this message. <laughs> the miracles don't save anybody. In fact, it makes idolaters out of people. They start being sign seekers and wonder lovers and, yeah, I guess more firecrackers. And then they start forgetting the word and gospel. So, uh, over familiarity with Jesus in the wrong way can blind you to who he really is. And I close with, so I said there were two points in this text, and I've just dealt with this one. This cluster of things in a prophet gets no honor in his hometown. Why? This pride of attachment here and this sense of entitlement here and this overfamiliarity here. Those are the kind of things that are still alive today and keeping people from knowing him. And now the real main point of the text is watch him do his work. So let's just close while you watch him. I think John very intentionally has made a connection here. Those three things are a failure to see his, his grace, because you have a sense of entitlement, so you don't understand grace, and his power, because he's so familiar, he can't really be that powerful. He's just one of us. So grace and power 
are things that you're all confused about and aren't working right in your life. And so now this miracle is highlighting those two things, grace and power. Mercy and might, if we wanted to use the familiar phrase in the in the uh, song. So let's just mention grace first. How do you see grace here? If I ask you that, how do you see grace in this? And the answer is Jesus did this miracle in the context of uh, hostility, disapproval, misunderstanding. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That, that's the context. And the next words out of his mouth are, go, the boy's well. So in, in the very moment when he's criticizing everybody, including the man in front of him, he's criticizing him for loving signs too much, he gives them one. That's grace. Jesus was very provoked at these people. And unlike me, I think, when I get provoked, I don't do anything nice to anybody. Jesus, at the very moment when he's provoked, heals the boy. That's grace. This, this man was a stranger. This man probably worked for Herod. This man uh, doesn't say anything about the person of Jesus. He just wants his son well. And Jesus gives it to him. Power. This is amazing power. You should be amazed at your Lord Jesus. Three ways it's shown. Number one. Um. A mere word, just a word. The boy is sick. There, there's a fever, it says. There's a fever 15 miles away. And Jesus thinks a thought and speaks a few words. And 15 miles away, chemical changes happen in the boy's body. And he is well. That's our king. He just thinks and worlds come into being and he thinks and speaks and worlds change. Cause effect processes are interrupted. He is not locked into this world like we are. That's our king. Very much alive today. That's the first demonstration of his power. Just a word. Secondly, it's at a distance. He doesn't need to touch him. The woman reached out and touched his garment. The power went out from him, it says. Here, nobody touched him. He just fought. And it could have been 15,000 miles away. The point is that when the power of Jesus is at stake, spatiality is irrelevant. He could be 15 million light years away and think the thought and hear everything changes. That's who he is. This boy got well at a distance and no need for any magical mumbo jumbo was necessary. And the third demonstration is, and this one John especially enjoyed highlighting. It was immediate because he nails it at one o'clock. Right? I mean, that's the point. That's the final point. He says, go your boy will live. And the next day he meets, he says, when did he get well? And they said, seventh hour. Nailed it. He nailed it. 
He nailed it. And then it says, he believed. <laughs> a word at a distance, immediate. That's our king. And that's, that's what John means. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we and that official and that little boy have all received grace upon grace. I don't know what your challenges are right now. I know some of them. I look at you and I know some of your challenges, huge ones, beyond your strength. And I hope when you hear stories like this from me, from the Bible, you take profound heart. Yes, yes, Jesus is enough. Yes, he can speak for me. He can work for me. He can hold me. He can heal me. He can strengthen me. He can get me through. He is great. And I pray that your eyes will be open and that there won't be any pride of attachment, any sense of entitlement, any blinding familiarity, but just the glory of his grace and his power. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for grace. Where would I be without grace? I have no merit. I wasn't born into the home of Ruth and Bill Piper because I deserved it. I didn't hear the gospel because I merited it. My deadness and hostility and rebellion wasn't overcome because I merited it. Faith didn't rise in my heart because I merited it. Nothing that I do in my efforts to please you are meritorious because by grace of God I am what I am. And your grace towards me was not in vain, but I worked. And nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Where would we be? Oh, that Bethlehem would be done with a sense of entitlement, done with a sense of attached pride in anybody or anything, done with a sense of ego stoking through vicarious importance, done with excessive familiarity that limitates Jesus from his mighty works. May we be done with it. And make us like children, like this little boy, waiting, waiting. And would you do your healing work, even in this room right now, Lord, and, and for David in PV Park, take his cancer away and save his soul. He has in his hands, for your joy and the most spectacular sin in the universe, take him there. And in this room, I pray, in Jesus' name.